0: So the other day I saw this amazing bird, it had colorful plumage, and was singing this beautiful song.
1: Oh, that's awesome.
0: Yeah, and it was delicious.
1: Oh my god, what? What? Hello, and welcome to Science French. I'm Katie McKissick, aka Beatrice the Biologist, and I'm here with May Prince. Hello. Hello so today what are we doing again
0: how did what where are we here <laughs> um i'm gonna be talking about salim ali what you don't know wait, so, 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 what well his full name okay. is salim moizuddin abdul ali okay does that sound more familiar unfortunately no <laughs> but i can't wait to meet him
1: Yes, and hopefully he is cool enough to be invited to brunch. He is definitely
0: cool enough. Oh, okay, good. That's always nice to know up, up front <laughs> Have we had anyone that we didn't invite to brunch? Yeah, last last time we uh, we switched out our mystery topic, right? Because so yeah, it I, turns out she sucks. Yeah, so
1: I, I didn't invite her to brunch. But have we ever had a whole episode and just not invite the person to brunch at the end? I don't think so. I think we're going to do that later on, though, you guys. <laughs> so <laughs> we're like, it's coming. I'm busy. Yeah, and this season we're going to talk about somebody. I have an ultimate frisbee tournament. And then I can't in... come to brunch. Yeah. And then we're going to possibly
0: resend our invitation. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself as <laughs> usual. Uh, but yeah, before I talk about him, uh, what's our what's our science starter today? Well, I want to talk about what Neanderthals ate
1: okay oh, did you hear about this no. oh, okay awesome
0: it, i'm gonna guess breakfast burritos <laughs> I'm because i'm always that's excited what
1: I <laughs> when i have something um but yeah they that you haven't heard of yet so exciting um yeah so neanderthals uh, fun fact i am four percent neanderthal what yeah if you are of european descent then it is very likely that your ancestors I see. got funky with uh, some Neanderthals. Mm. So you have some, some, uh, some DNA in I there. I always
0: thought that underbite of yours. looked really.
1: <laughs> hey, <laughs> don't say anything about my eyebrows either. Or my brow line, your noble brow. Yes. Um, I swear I don't look like a Neanderthal. Neanderthal guys, <laughs> I love what
0: people are imagining in their heads right anything now. anything
1: wrong with that. Uh, but yeah, I know that I'm about 4% because my brother is about 4%. Oh. He has done 23 in me. And what, because one of the things that they'll tell you in addition to random genealogy stuff or health stuff is right. how much neanderthal dna you are he's four percent so i'm just going to assume i'm very similar <laughs> because we are very much related
0: <laughs> um, perhaps a flawed yeah. premise but yeah. you know one we'll go with
1: yeah so neanderthals lived in europe and uh yeah they they managed to get some dental plaque from a neanderthal skeleton and Mm. then they were looking into what sorts of microbes are in that dental plaque and then figuring out what sorts of things neanderthals ate because i'm guessing they didn't floss (laughs) that much not very much i mean i don't know maybe they chewed on some stuff that kind of brushed their teeth but yeah anyway what they found is that it was wild variation Because in some areas, Neanderthals were eating a lot of meat, like woolly rhinoceroses and things like that. Delicious. And in other places, they were totally vegetarian. They would eat mushrooms or moss or things like that. They also figured out that they were likely self-medicating because they found um, basically that they were eating this bark from a tree, which Mm -hmm. has uh, a chemical in it that's basically uh, aspirin. Really? Or is it Tylenol? Ooh, to double check that. <laughs> which one is it. I believe it's aspirin. I'm, I'm going to say it's, it's... got to be aspirin. Yeah, now, actually,
0: this was a trivia question a while ago. Yeah. I am such a dork, but yes, it's aspirin.
1: Yeah, okay, good. I was like, I doubted myself for a second there, <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. So, so they were, you know, munching on that bark and probably, you know, alleviating that headache from. I don't know, banging their heads against rocks or whatever <laughs> Neanderthals did. No, I was kidding. Um modern <laughs> <a> pastime. <laughs> cause and it's it's cool that they did this study because um, you know, a lot of people when you think about Neanderthals, just because they have that really thick brow mm-hmm. and we just kind of like they're the kind of stereotypical, you know, caveman right. sort of image. Um, but it's they probably weren't that sort of like big club like sort of yeah, rah, 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 sort of. <laughs> I am a okay, uh, Like this very simple minded, like meat eating, uh, you know, person back then. They, they might have, they, some of them were vegetarians yeah. and they were, you they know, were just like scared kn- of the
0: woolly mammoth. Yeah, Maybe I mean, it wasn't a conscious, like, choice.
1: Poor Neanderthals. We've turned them into such, this, like, caricature. I mean, they were pretty successful and we you know
0: and then we humans didn't we just kill them all
1: yeah that's kind of it's kind of up for debate i mean the other thing about what they were looking at with uh, the you know the microbes in their teeth is that uh they shared the, a lot of them with the you know the humans that lived alongside them mm-hmm. which definitely suggests that there was a lot of intermingling going on whether they were you know actually kissing and swapping <laughs> things on their mouth that way or <laughs> or or sharing food or whatever um but, um, but yeah, so at first people thought that we, yeah, they went extinct because we were, you know, murderizing all of them. Mm. But that, but now that we know that, um, people like myself have Neanderthal DNA, obviously there was, you know, some gene sharing going on. Hangy-pangy. Yeah. So a little, a little mingling, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the extent to which, so yeah, it, it's, it's something that's up for debate, mm. kind of what those interactions were really like and how, how they got along, how they didn't get along, who was doing what so yeah pretty cool but i just love the concept of like you know getting yeah. plaque off of these old bones and seeing what they ate and what kind of microbes lived in their mouths so my cool. my dentist is not
0: nearly as thrilled when he finds <laughs> plaque in
1: my teeth yeah man i bet dentists are just like oh god i don't want to hear about this <laughs> floss i know guys do you think they
0: all just internally cringed
1: although do you remember last year when they removed flossing from that list of recommended ways to have you, you heard about no this? oh my god i'm still flossing is this not a thing anymore? okay no. so here's the thing they they took flossing off of this list of you know recommended you know things to do to, to take care of yourself whatever okay because there isn't enough actual research to back up that flossing is directly you know you know like makes your teeth better Then it's good for your teeth which i feel like i would assume is just because not many people have studied it because it's so duh like yeah removing that chunk yeah. between your teeth is a good idea yeah but anyway because there is actually not not a whole lot of direct evidence about whether or not flossing more prevents gingivitis and things they actually hmm. removed it from this list of I'd have to, do, have to look this up really quick. But
0: showering is still on there, right? We, we're still supposed to wash our bodies.
1: They technically removed it from this list of kind of, like from a federal agency that recommends, you know, to to brush your teeth twice a day, whatever. They, hmm. took, they took flossing off just because there's actually not a ton of evidence about it. But... Of course, after they did that, every dentist was like, "No, you guys, seriously, please still floss." Yeah, (laughs) I don't know why they took it off, but just just keep doing it anyway. If you listen very
0: carefully, you can hear the screams of a million
1: dentists. It was the day that the day that it happened, and everybody was talking about it on Twitter. A friend of mine was at the dentist, and I was (laughs) like, "Ask your dentist about this. I'm so confused." (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> the dentist just fainted.
1: But anyway, there were not a whole lot of Neanderthal dentists, which is great because they had a lot of plaque, and so we can learn things.
0: Yay! But See, this don't... is why you shouldn't go to the dentist, so
1: that they can dig up your body <laughs> thousands
0: of years from now. Exactly. And learn about what you ate, and they'd be like, Cheetos. "This person ate so many breakfast burritos; they must have been very happy." We found traces of cheese puffs
1: again. <laughs> this person needed to lay off the cheese puffs.
0: Oh, God, they died happy mm-hmm. and orange. Yeah. Yeah. Well, awesome. Yeah. Good old Neanderthals. It's good to know the plaque is good for something. So
1: our guest is, I'm guessing, not a ne- Neanderthal. He is not. <gasps> Amazing.
0: <laughs> he came a little bit after the Neanderthals, oh. along with all of the rest of us. <clears throat> um, but no, uh, our, our guy is from India, and he is actually known as the Birdman of India and so he was very half famous man, there half bird. he was half man half bird okay that is yes exactly no okay done he was not oh. please don't write us letters um <laughs> no he was uh he, he was basically responsible for cataloging like all the birds in india well probably not all of them but vast swaths of the bird population yeah, the, thing, the thing about birds is that there are so many different kinds yeah there's tons and like <laughs> and until you start writing them down and being like this one has yellow feet and this one has red feet even though they have the same head like you're not gonna know <laughs> the same that, they're, that they're different or they're like a variation within the same species you know you you don't know any of these delineations did until get you get to figure it out. any of them well, we'll get into it. Oh, okay, okay. So... Exciting. His full name, Salim Moizuddin Abdul Ali, he apparently just goes by Salim Ali, which is so much easier. Not just Salim? Well, Salim. But okay. Ali, yeah, his last name. Okay. Um, but yeah, he was born November 12th, 1896 in Bombay, which is now Mumbai. And this 1896. was in India. Okay, cool. So 1896, India, it was the British Indian Territories. So they hadn't gotten independence yet, or anything like that. Yeah, when did Gandhi do that stuff? Yeah, I'll I'll I'll, I'll hook into that. Oh wow, a little we're bit gonna later. get into Gandhi. We're gonna guys. get into everything, <gasps> because because, you know, uh, an environment that a scientist or a researcher lives in and grows up in, the political environment is very important because it does affect science funding and you know, the stability of your life and if your family is running or you're trying to escape or you're a refugee to another country, like all of those things, like people say like science isn't political.
1: Well, yeah, (laughs) it
0: totally is.
1: Yeah, I think, and I think that's, you know, just a problem with our vocabulary because it's like, it's not partisan. Right. Yes, it is political. I mean, people are doing it, so it's impossible for it to not be. Well, it's like people
0: saying, it doesn't matter what color you are, what gender you well, no, not technically, except that it does because it affects your actual life and yeah. how you are conducting that life. so yes, he he was uh, he was born into a Muslim family in in India, and he was the youngest among nine children. Yeah. Holy crap. those were the days and sadly, he lost both of his parents oh. by the age of three. Oh. not oh. really sure how it's or not why. But, um, his maternal uncle and, um, the uncle's wife were childless. And so they <laughs> took oh. them all in. And so suddenly they had nine children. Yeah. You know, usually that happens
1: gradually. Right. Usually you have them like
0: one or maybe Not two Not all at, at once. Time. I mean, maybe going all at once is the way to go. I, I don't had, know. Like, what are nine tuplets? Non-nona tuplets? <laughs> Nerf tuplets? <laughs> i don't know um but his uh his uncle was kind of a hunter and uh he showed him kind of how to do that stuff and he had a middle class upbringing and at the age of 10 he had a toy gun and he went out and he shot a sparrow which just looked like a regular sparrow but then when he like picked it up and was examining it he found out that it had like tufts of yellow feathers under its throat and he was like huh this doesn't look like a regular Sparrow. This Sparrow's so, weird. Yeah, the Sparrow's weird. The end. So he took it to his uncle. <laughs> well, the end would have been a very short, <laughs> not science French by the, by the way, non-uplets. <laughs> non-uplets. Yeah. That's stupid. They're
1: not uplets. They're non-uplets. <laughs>
0: Um, (laughs) So Weird Sparrow, gotcha. A gaggle of children. Um, So yeah, so Weird Sparrow. So he takes this sparrow to his uncle and he's like, Uncle, what kind of sparrow is this? It doesn't seem to be a regular whatever sparrow. And his uncle's like... I don't know. <laughs> Let's go to the Bombay Natural History Society and ask them. Cool. And so they go to the society where they meet Secretary uh, W.S. Millard and he identified the the bird for Salim. I think it was the yellow-throated sparrow or something equally snazzy name mm. um and he was kind of impressed that this 10 year old kid was so curious about this that he would come all the way to a society and ask you know a researcher questions
1: yeah most 10 year olds are just terrible
0: <laughs> yeah they shoot stuff and then it's it's over you know but he like shot stuff and he's like oh what is this and so he encouraged salim to make a collection of birds and offered to train him and how to skin them and pres- preserve them and mm. keep notes and everything and so Actually, um, (laughs) Salim started maintaining a a diary and he started keeping notes on all the different birds that he would observe and maybe shot. Um, Hmm. But he like (laughs) from a very young age, he was like writing down all the differences that he noted and and stuff like that. And uh, he he cites this in his autobiography. He he eventually wrote uh, an autobiography called The Fall of a Sparrow. And he notes that this event was what led him into the study of birds ornithology and led him on his kind of unusual career choice. He said at that time, people just were not really cataloging any of the birds in India. And it certainly, if there was cataloging going on, it was mostly by kind of the British and, you know, Mm. the whole colonial system. And so it wasn't really a thing that Indians did because it just that wasn't the way the institutions were set up interesting yeah so he uh he went to primary school at Zenana bible and medical mission girls high school i assume it was mostly for girls <laughs> but i don't know <laughs> uh, but he went with his sisters and i think it was probably one of those deals where it's like well there's one school you're gonna go or you're not gonna go yeah (laughs) so we went um but he he like often suffered from uh chronic headaches and so uh, like multiple times throughout his academic career he kind of had to drop out and for periods of time just because he was suffering from from headaches all the time yeah
1: so maybe he got migraines or something
0: yeah like from the age of about 13 it said so mm. it was kind of a, a constant thing in his life that made kind of studying and staying in school and having a regular kind of maybe he was allergic career. to birds. maybe. I don't know. know, but yeah, so he uh, he actually he passed the matriculation exam for Bombay University and he went and then he dropped out after one year at St. Xavier's College in Bombay. Um, and he just he like went to Burma. His family had a tungsten mining company there and also some timber company and so he went to work for them um and then he like got tired of that and in his early 20s 1917 he returned to india and decides i'm gonna go back to school oh, that's cool <laughs> screw this timber business um so he studied commercial law and accountancy which sounds
1: like boring like, I was say, it sounds like a blast <laughs> so okay so he dropped out of school because he wasn't feeling it did mm-hmm. some other stuff went back and it was just like super practical let me just major in something that i know exactly Okay. okay business all right
0: yeah exactly um but despite that um while he was at san xavier's college you know he's taking all these courses in accounting i imagine there was a teacher there who encouraged him to take zoology classes as well because he was like you seem super into studying animals and stuff. Maybe you should take a couple courses. And so he did. So he studied some zoology in college, but I think he only ever got a bachelor's degree. He never like went on for a master's or a PhD or anything like that. And that was a problem because he desperately wanted the ornithologist position, which was open at the zoological survey there, and he couldn't get it because he didn't have, have, to have a, PhD. a high enough degree. Yeah. Exactly. They were like... We don't care if you've been studying birds since you were 10. Too bad. You know, you need a degree. Mm, So... Bummer. Sad. He got married, age 22. And then he was hired as a guest lecturer at about the age of 30 at a natural history section of the Prince of Wales Museum in Bombay. And he basically was kind of, you know, the tour guide, showed people around, explained all the different uh, exhibits to them, samples, birds. sounds like fun. Sounds like fun. I mean... He already knew about all about those birds anyway.
1: I love the bird halls of museums. (laughs) I know. Birds are so, like, some of the bigger ones, I mean, they're, you know, they're obviously in the museums, they're dead and stuffed, and so you're like, oh, that's cool, (laughs) but if you really take a second and look at it and imagine it being alive and coming towards you, they're so scary. Yeah
0: yeah especially the big ones (laughs)
1: oh my god yeah i mean i fed an ostrich once at Uh this ostrich farm you just like hold out this tray of food and it just like smashing its face (laughs) into it and it's like (laughs) this is a dinosaur it's going to murder me it's so big and its eyes are so intense and its beak looks like it could crush me so scary and it probably
0: would eat you if it could it's like it's like eating the seeds but it's like oh i could totally eat this person
1: yeah man (laughs)
0: But yeah, so he you know he had this job for a couple of years, but then he kind of got bored with the mon- monotony of it all. Like this wasn't actually what he wanted to do. Right. wanted to like, show people around a museum of stuff that's already stuffed. He wanted <laughs> right. He wanted to be out exploring the world. And so he decided to like take a sabbatical from the job and he went to Germany on study leave. and he was at the Berlin Zoological Museum. And while he was there, he got all sorts of experience and, like, mixed with a bunch of major German ornithologists and big names in the field. And he got all this experience in, like, you know, how to catalog birds and how to preserve them, take care of them, all the official kind of route, you know, to do this field of study, which is nice because, you know, he never actually got, you know, an advanced degree in zoology or anything like that. And I don't think it really would have compared to the real life experience anyway. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty cool. And uh, in 1930, so you know, he's in his mid30s by now, he returns to India. And good, well, so he left Germany. So he left Germany. <laughs> I know, right? So but this was before. This was like 1930. I guess there was are, still some time. things are starting to get sketchy. <laughs> but yeah, he left before things got super weird. Um, and he returned to India. But when he returned, he found out that his job position had been eliminated. Oh. So they were um, like, so sorry. It's not here anymore. uh, Thanks a lot. (laughs) And so his wife was like, well, my family has a house in Kehim. It's a coastal village near Bombay. Let's just go live there. And so, you know, he's unemployed. And he's like, okay, (sighs) I guess we'll go live there. But the cool thing is, is that... There were all these. He's st- like you know, while he's there on this in this coastal village, he stumbles on a flock of baya weaver birds, and they were like weaving these intricate nests. And of course, he became fascinated by them because birds. <laughs> and he he said, "This is what began what he called the longest and most unbroken opportunity for research," which is the best description of unemployment that I've ever heard. <laughs> And so this is called the right attitude. The right attitude. And so he started, you know, studying them and like making all these observations. That's awesome. And he actually published a research paper on them called "Stopping by the Woods on a Sunday Morning." Oh, stop it Which is the best name for a research paper? What? Yes. And so um, it was on the activities of the weaver bird. It was published in 1930, and this piece basically made him famous. And established him in the field of ornithology Rock as on. like a legit dude. Yeah. So And a great paper namer. Best outcome to unemployment that I've also ever heard. <laughs> um, and so this gave him an idea. So he was like, huh, how about if I conduct surveys of birds by wandering around India mm-hmm. and, you know, museums and and, and societies... Pay for these trips because research. So he's basically like,
1: give me your mummies
0: and I will go places. Done. He's like, so I want to go camping. Could could you buy me a tent and then I'll give you all my bird notes? This sounds like Jane Goodall. I know. And it's exactly like that. And he's like, he just wants to wander around. She's like, she stayed in one spot for like a million years and he was just like, I'm just going to walk everywhere in India. And so it kind of worked. And um, it worked because this is exactly what he wanted to do. He didn't want to be in a museum cataloging already dead birds. Like, what he was interested in was their behavior and their mating habits and their, you know, where they lived and how they interacted with the environment. Like, all of the behavioral, alive (laughs) biology side of things. Like, He wanted to know the differences between them and all of that, but he was really just interested in their place in the natural world and how they interacted with it. And so you can only really collect this research by wandering around and and observing them and taking, you know, fastidious notes. Isn't it so
1: funny that there are people that were biologists that could just go their whole career and only see the dead things that they study
0: yeah exactly you you study living things right isn't that what biology means living and that's what bored (laughs) him about the museum job he's just like going around pointing at all these dead birds and they you know they hadn't really cataloged any of the birds in india Mm. like to to a great extent and it was kind of shocking because they suspected that india harbored about 1200 species of the total 8500 in the world oh wow that's a big chunk i mean india is a big chunk of territory right but they didn't really know anything they didn't have any notes on it and he was just like yeah so i hear there's like 12 birds out here <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna find them you guys want to throw some money at some camping equipment and hmm. I'll, I'll be back in a month um so he became like very he was a very strict Kind of field researcher, and he had the way that he did things, and I guess sometimes drove his fellow researchers a little bit crazy with that. But Why? they came to, well, because he was very particular, like he was very scientific about mm. the way that he wanted the observations made, and he gotcha. was pointing out things that had been written about birds that were wrong. You know, he was like, actually, in observing, I noticed that you are wrong about this and this and this and this. And so a bunch of people in the field at first, you know, this Indian guy is like telling them, hey, you're kind of wrong about telling this. Me that, this. Guy can tell me that I'm wrong. And it He's hurts hurting my feelings. My science feelings. <laughs> and so. <laughs> my science feelings. And so, you know, but eventually he, like, actually won over a lot of the people that he worked with because they were like, oh, no, he's awesome. Like, he is definitely the guy to hang out with if See, you want to learn about more science. about birds. When you
1: tell someone that they're wrong, at first they're like, right. yeah, you're hurting my science feelings. <laughs> but then they come around and they're like, oh, actually, it's really great you told me I'm wrong because exactly. now we have these new opportunities. And then they're like, let me
0: hitch myself to this wagon. Science. Exactly. It works most of the time. It's like, uh, you know, Marie Curie's husband. He's like, oh, would he study crystallography? Mm-hmm. He's like, crystallography is terrible and sucks. I'm definitely going to do what Marie is doing. <laughs> Marie, you got some good ideas. I'm going to come over here with you. I realize Sounds now good. this is the voice that I do for every, every side. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So he, you know, he started doing this and like going around and getting these grants to kind of like do this research. And then 1939, unfortunately, his wife dies.
1: Oh, I was just going to ask about her. It's so funny that that's how that works. Because I was like, okay, so he's doing all this. Like, what? What is his wife up to? His
0: wife dies, and so he actually spent the rest of his life um, living with his sister and her husband. And apparently, like, it really hit him pretty hard. Mm. Like, he was very lonely afterwards, and he missed her a lot. And he kind of threw himself into his work a bit, and he became a very prolific writer after that I mean before this he had written that one research paper that kind of made him famous um 10 years before and then she died and he's like well it's all birds all the time now so words are my friends now exactly and so um I don't think he he ever remarried or anything like that I don't know if he had any relationships apart from that but apart from his relationships with birds um <laughs> which is not weird at all it's not like <laughs> Tesla's relationship with birds which is weird you guys <laughs> pigeons pigeons <laughs> usually love people pigeons. don't go for the pigeons i know but somebody likes them Ugh. Ugh. so anyway yeah so uh he in 1941 just two years after she dies he published one of his most popular books called the book of indian birds and that is considered the landmark book in bird categorization and and research in india and I think it became very popular and accessible because, you know, it was published and people could actually just go to their store and like pick up a copy. And so it became kind of like the everyman's guide to birds in India. And it was the first of its kind because before that, you know, they didn't really know what was out there and they hadn't really started cataloging anything. And so he made that possible. So is it- this
1: something that lay people were buying too, or was this just yeah.
0: academic? Oh, okay. it was, it's just like a bird guide. Okay. So if you go to your bookstore and you're looking for birds of LA or whatever, it's like that except it was like the only choice gotcha so
1: that you can go birding exactly I love birding that as a verb
0: or if you shoot a bird and you're like what kind of bird is this <laughs> what kind of bird did i just I murder i probably shouldn't have shot it okay. <laughs> is it endangered <laughs> um <laughs> it is now so you know this is the early 1940s things are going terribly wrong in europe <sighs> Meanwhile, in India, things are going great. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Things are not going great. Oh my God, I was like, wait,
1: what? (laughs) It
0: is? (laughs) Everything is going wrong everywhere. Okay, so just a little bit of backstory. So, you know, the British colonial rule of India. India used to be much bigger than it is now now as a country like it included the territories of Pakistan and Bangladesh as well so there's this huge swath of land that the British had come in and taken over and ruled under colonial rule and the way they did that was you know they set up viceroys and whatever and ruled that way and in 1885 this group of Indian citizens got together and they formed the Indian National Congress and the idea was that they were like we want a way to interact with our British colonial rulers. And so we're going to get some the best and the brightest together and we're going to talk to them. We're going to get together and we're going to talk to them and tell us like what we want. And hopefully they'll give us some of what we want. The Brits love this idea. <laughs> Nuts! <laughs> <laughs> they hated it. Um, but, Just kidding. Because no. you know the the INC as it was called. You know, it, their demands got bigger and bigger, and the Brits were like, we don't want." <laughs> We just want to rule you guys. Will you just cooperate? And so they didn't really like this group. <laughs> we just want to rule you. <laughs> Why won't you? Don't let you us? understand?
1: Why? Why won't you let us rule you?
0: Why? <laughs> exactly. I forgot to do the accent. Yeah. I was and say. so you know, this is where Mahatma Gandhi comes on the scene because he had been in South Africa, where he was witnessing kind of their political turmoil and you know the nonviolent protest movement. And in the early 1920s, he became the INC president. And he started his Indian brand of activism because he was like, listen, the only reason why the British are able to rule us is because we kind of cooperate and let them do it. And so if we just stop cooperating, they'll eventually have to grant us independence because it'll just be too difficult for them to rule us. Mm -hmm. Like, we won't even have to do any kind of violence. They'll just be like, fine. (laughs) They'll just get sick of it. Exactly. It's like, you know, when you, like, try to pick up your kid and just goes limp, (laughs) like, falls on the ground. You're like, screw it i'll just leave them here on the sidewalk now i have one less child you know (laughs) it's just the way it goes um so yeah so that was that was a whole idea of civil disobedience and that's how they would gain independence and so actually in 1930 the inc declares just declares india's independence from britain they're like nope Okay. See ya. No bye bye. We're done with you. And the Brits are like, oh, no. <laughs> um, but instead of just you know just squashing them completely, they're like, Whoa, We'll talk. We'll negotiate. Okay. We'll, we'll talk a little bit. And so, as the first protest of British rule, Gandhi led the Salt March, which you may have heard of. And the whole reason behind that was that the British had been taxing the production of salt, and salt was very important in India. It's like used in all the food you ever eat, like only the British would consider salt not an essential part of life. Like, <laughs> they're like, why does food need flavor? Um, <laughs> but it's also important because you're in a tropical climate. So you actually need salt in order to retain water and right. not die. Yeah. Um, so it was very important. And Gandhi was like, no, let's not be taxed on salt anymore. This essential part of life. Let's march to the sea and make our own salt. Which was illegal because then you are doing it for free and you're not paying the Brits their fair share
1: this sounds so reminiscent of another
0: country giving
1: them some problems in the 1700s i don't know
0: which one i don't know which one but probably not an important one i just love the brits are like why do they keep doing this
1: why does everybody not want us
0: to rule them you are hurting our rulership feelings
1: (laughs) our imperial feelings are so hurt right now
0: (laughs) you guys you are making me sad inside (laughs) and so yeah so gandhi leads this almost month-long march to the sea in like thousands of people are joining and i think that they all like wore like white and so there's this huge sea of just white like traveling to the sea to get salt to get salt to make salt and um it's interesting like during that whole process Gandhi wasn't, the Brits were like, should we arrest Gandhi? Should we arrest Gandhi? Should we do it? Um, and then the second part of that was a raid on assault works. And when the Brits found out about that, they're like, okay, we're arresting him. And so they threw him in jail. And it was actually one, not, not the uncle that raised Selim, but one of his other uncles who was like a freedom fighter in India. He was the second in command for that, for that oh, movement. And so wow. he took over the salt march. So it was like, he was directly connected yeah. to the whole independence movement. So, um, 1942, so this is like 12 years after they were like, we're independent. This time in 1942, Gandhi was like, we are independent. Like, that's it. You guys Yeah. (laughs) go away. (laughs) And the Brits immediately like imprison a bunch of people. They're like, no, no, no. And this is during this time, the Muslim league, which, you know, Indians, they were a lot, they were mixed population of all these different religions or, you know, the Sikhs and the Hindus and Muslims and everything. And the Muslim League was, you know, a group of Muslims who was also negotiating with the Brits. So sorry, isn't it pronounced Sikh? See, I'm friends with someone on Facebook that said it's Sikh.
1: Really? Yeah. I've never heard that. Yeah. Okay, good to know.
0: I think it's Sikh. So the Muslim League actually separately cooperated with the Brits, and we're like, hey, when this all goes south and you guys have to give us independence, (laughs) can we have our own country? Because we want to be separate from all these other people. And so that is actually how Pakistan came to be. That's why there's a division. Like, that I land all used to did be one not thing. not that. Yep. And um, this is not what Gandhi wanted. Gandhi wanted a multi-religious, multicultural country of India. And what ended up happening was in 1947, finally, the Brits were like, fine. You <laughs> <Because, laughs> guys are so annoying. We don't even want to rule you anymore. I mean, the unspoken player in this whole drama is World War II which really hit the Brits really hard. I mean, at least they didn't get invaded, like France or Poland, for example.
1: But they got bombed. But they
0: got bombed. They had this huge war effort going on. It just ruined their economy. And so after the war, they were like, we have to rebuild. And, like, actually all of Europe was that same way. They were like, we have to focus on home and rebuild our economy and, like, rebuild all of our infrastructure, which has been bombed to pieces. And so they were not able to hold on to colonial rule on territories all over the world. And so that's why it's right after the world World War II which a lot of African nations gained their independence. Um, and this is why India got their independence cuz finally the Brits the Brits were like, oh, Lord. yeah, we can't we're do We're so this tired anymore. you guys. Yeah. <laughs> Just go. <laughs> and so that actually set off a lot of infighting in India afterwards because there were all these different there's always struggle for power in a vacuum and so That is how we came. And originally, so British India was then split between the Hindu and Muslim populations into India and East and West Pakistan. And the reason why it's East and West Pakistan is because if you look at a map right now and you go left to right, it's Pakistan, India, Bangladesh. Originally, Pakistan and Bangladesh were East and West Pakistan. Oh, That was Pakistan. And then in 1971, East Pakistan secedes and becomes Bangladesh so gotcha. that's they all used to be the same territory under the brits and then over the years they have split off and become their own countries but bangladesh pakistan muslim mostly and india mostly hindu although there's still mixing going in right and there's been a lot of infighting since and fighting between countries like Kashmir conflict arms race between pakistan and india all that and all during, that jazz and during this
1: whole time there are also birds there.
0: There are also birds there. And so the reason why this is relevant is because after India got their independence, you know, then they had to concentrate on building their own country up and like forming a government and all of that. And so all of these kind of scientific societies were in danger of losing all of their funding and support. Oh. And so what Salim did was he, he called or he wrote, I guess, the prime minister, uh, Nehru, the first prime minister of India. And he was like dude, we really need to continue this bird research. You really need to keep funding the, the Natural History Society. And so he secured the funding that kept them alive wow. through that transition period. You know, that probably was a really hard argument to make. I, I know, right? But he was already famous, and so, like, oh, I guess cool. the prime minister getting a call from a famous guy, like, if he got a call from David Attenborough, and he was like, it's <laughs> like you should probably still give us money, I'd be like, okay. <laughs> I wanted to buy this missile. but Okay. <laughs> Birds are cool too. Yay. Yeah. So he, he like used his weight in that field to really just continue that research. And I mean, I probably was partially self-serving, but honestly, like he supposedly never really cared about money in his life, except for the continuation of the research and that historical society. Cause he was just like, this is what I want to, this is important, this is what I want to continue.
1: Right, and it probably was, maybe it was easier to make that argument because it is not a ton of money in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. I mean, especially like the money that he got when he was just going around camping. I mean, it wasn't like right. he, was, he wasn't glamping, and he
0: he, he insisted on being frugal, yeah. which was also a bone of contention with his camping mates because they were like, "Why are we eating beans again?" Or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> Where's our airstream? <laughs> Where's our airstream?
1: <laughs>
0: I like, wanted to go camping. He's like, and... why do you need a tent? No one needs a tent. <laughs> just sleep outside. <laughs> Cover yourself with leaves. Jeez, who are um, you? But yeah, so he, you know, he was famous. He ended up writing a bunch of books. He actually went to the Ornithological Congress at Uppsala, Sweden in 1950. And he was super into motorcycles also. I forgot to mention. I know. He, he well, bought I guess, his-
1: Is that how he went, got around while he was camping? I don't
0: know. I, don't, I guess that would be. I don't think efficient. you can, like, I imagine they were kind of trekking through uncharted territory in the jungle and stuff. I don't know if you can, like, ride a motorcycle through there, but he well, was very in, in Jurassic very World, they them. did, so. This is true. <laughs> so it's probably easy. Point, counterpoint. <laughs> Use Chris Pratt.
1: <laughs> His character in Jurassic By the way, World. like, I love that part of that movie. Someone, it was my mom. She was like, I don't understand. Like, <laughs> the, the raptors are, like, jumping over logs and, like, just going, through, like, off-roading. And He's like, brr. Is like straight away on this motorcycle. I was like, wait,
0: I thought they were logs. And there, stuff. there are multiple problems, <laughs> multiple, multiple problems with that movie. Their explanation of genetics, where they're just like, "Oh, yeah, we're spliced in the magic genes for the about glowing it. whatever." I'm like, "Oh my god!" was Like, I can just feel everyone's like dropping in the theater. Um, but yeah, so he was super into motorcycles and he owned a bunch during his life, like Harley Davidsons, and he actually had a Sunbeam motorcycle and he shipped it to Europe for this conference and like was riding around Germany. Oh, he like, got in a couple of banners <laughs> because he wasn't used to, I guess, the cobbled streets there. Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> and that um, the rumor was when he showed up at the conference, they were like, he rode that motorcycle all the way from India. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like part of his legend. Oh, my God. Um, he wrote a bunch of books. One of his most famous books was, you know, the 1948 Handbook of Birds of India and Pakistan. And he ended up writing that with dylan ripley who was the secretary at the smithsonian institution in the united states and they had met on a previous trip and they were like we should write a book together Mm -hmm. and then they you know got the funding and everything and that was like They met, I think, 25 years before their famous book was actually published. So they worked together a lot. And I think it was even before um, Dylan was at the Smithsonian Institution, but he, like, eventually made it to that position because he was also a famous ornithologist in the United States. So he was making friends in high places. Um, One of the interesting things reading about him, like, you know, his whole story started out with him shooting a bird Mm -hmm. and then being like, what kind of bird is this? (laughs) Um, And so people, like... He said the conservation movement was something that he didn't quite buy into. It was this whole idea of every life is precious and there's a sanctity of life or whatever. That was not his philosophy. His philosophy was more like the Teddy Roosevelt conservationist philosophy, which was let's also shoot things i respect you so much
1: <laughs> that i
0: want to kill you yes but he believed in hunting and that kind of thing in a responsible way and so he was raised by an uncle who was a hunter and taught him like the proper way of responsible hunting and you know don't overkill a certain species whatever um and he was upset by the trends in like other kinds of hunting where it was just like indiscriminate and it wasn't you know abiding by the endangered species rules or whatever mm-hmm. so he didn't like that he, he was like no let's conserve and also you know everything in moderation kill some of it um <laughs> <laughs> just kill like just one mm-hmm. yeah so he was called the ecologist with a gun basically <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay um and and he was like he was not shy about the fact that he also ate ate meat he was like no oh, whatever it's fine like he so it's not he wasn't like a hippie dippy guy wandering through the forest like just imagine like a hippie with a gun he, he was very thin and you know he got older and he looked kind of like whatever but he was definitely shooting did stuff did he
1: eat the birds so would he shoot a bird that he was studying and eat it and then you know and then and then also preserve the feathers and stuff like was he eating his <sighs> sub his study
0: subjects yes so in actually in 1953 There was this village, and they wanted to, you know, clear a space for agriculture. And he went to his old buddy, Prime Minister Nehru, and was like, Hey, no, this should be a natural sanctuary. Ah. It should not be turned into farmland. And so he was like, Okay, make it a sanctuary, because... (laughs) their best friends. And so, it was because it was like a stopping place for all these migrant birds like as they migrated to different areas, that's where they stopped and and one of them was a the Siberian crane which flew like 3,000 miles in winter to reach this part and it was an endangered species. And Salim was actually the first to spot it in 1936, so years before. And yeah, he shot it and ate it. <laughs> It was as delicious as it is beautiful. <laughs> exactly. Um, but then, you know, he, he tried to make up for it 20 years later when he's like, no, 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 this area should be protected. The, and birds, so, the birds need this. You can't have it. Exactly. That's cool. And so for all of his work, he he got many honorary degrees, which I guess if he had time traveled, it would have been common handy <laughs> to get that job that he wanted. But if you would gotten um, that
1: job... Would he have done all this stuff? I know, exactly,
0: (gasps) exactly. He definitely would have been stuck in a museum instead of wandering around amongst the birds. Sometimes
1: things work out for the best, and it's just great.
0: Yeah, and he was actually the first non-British person to win the prestigious gold medal of the British Ornithologist Union in 1967. Neat. So a mere 20 years after independence, the Brits were like... Fine. <laughs> you can have this award because you're so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he does have some stuff named after him. So there's a Himalayan forest thrush, and its official name is Zuethera Salim Ali. Oh, cool! And that was named in 2016, so oh, just last year. My goodness. And then there's also a fruit bat named after him. Oh, awesome! Uh, Ladaden Salim Ali. And it's a rare megabat species, and that was endangered, and it was named in 1972. A megabat because it's so big? A megabat. Yeah, I think so. Also, fruit bats are all kind of larger, yeah? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, and they're adorable. I know. So during his lifetime, you know, he was super into conservation. He wanted to keep the Bombay Natural History Society in Mumbai, like, funded. And he actually, one of the awards that he got uh, it was the J Paul Getty International Prize for Nature Conservation. He got that in 1976 and he liked that prize the most because it gave him $50,000 which he gave <laughs> to the museum. He oh, was cool. like he was like awesome money and then he just throws it at. And yeah, so he's really Natural old Society. At this point. Yeah, so in 1976 he was 80. He's old. Yeah, he was old. And so um yeah, he just in his honor, in 1990, they founded the Salim Ali Center for Ornithology and Natural History. And that was after his death. He died in the late 80s, in 1987. Um, and he died from prostate cancer. But And, and when he died, you know, he was, he was famous, like everyone in India knew him. And he was, like, really old at that point. Yeah, so he was, like, a household name? I think so. That's really cool. I mean, are, any listeners who are in India or grew up in India could tell us. But it seems like he was famous and he was like the Birdman of India. Like that's that was his nickname.
1: It's so funny because I feel like scientists used to be more well known. I mean, I know when when Marie Curie came and visited the United States, she got this like rock star welcome. And so people used to be able to name a few current scientists. But that is, I feel like, not the situation anymore. Like, when people are like, name a scientist, they're like, Bill Nye? It's like, well, first of all, he's an engineer. Second of all, (laughs) he's a, you know, he's a celebrity for for doing really cool science education stuff. But I don't think he does any research or anything. I mean, I guess Neil deGrasse Tyson does. Stephen Hawking? Yeah, that's true. People would say Stephen Hawking. That's true. But
0: there's not, you're right. There's not that many. And, like, Jane Goodall growing up was was a huge name. Like, I knew that name since I was in kindergarten. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, like I don't know, was it because like National Geographic, like hard copy was still a thing? I don't know. I either. don't know,
1: but yeah, but there aren't very many. So I mean, yeah. I and I, I think it's really cool that he was really well known. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, and he he was not super impressed with the fame. Like, um, there's this quote, it says, it's a good thing to be recognized, but I don't sort of begin to jump or dance. I feel all this talk about worldwide renown and so is fictitious. In the context of world ornithology, the work we have done here is nothing. I feel like a frog in the well or a one-eyed man in the land of the blind. Wow. (laughs) So he was like. Yeah, we did some good stuff, but it's not enough. Like he mm-hmm. was always pushing, and what he wanted most of all was for that work to continue. That's awesome. Yeah. So he. I love, spent... I love people who don't rest on their laurels. You yeah. know that are just. And like... he'd been doing it for eight years. Yeah. If anyone could brag about. Yeah. Or, yeah. Having an impact in this field. They all self like, yeah, I know, I'm so
1: awesome. I did so many things. There's yeah. like nothing even left to do anymore. That's a true
0: scientist who's like, no, no, no. We have just
1: barely scratched the surface. So don't anybody just rest back and go, oh, yeah, we're, we did such a great job. No, 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 no. Yeah. This is but the beginning.
0: And his, uh, his old pal, um, Dylan, that he'd co-authored that previous book with, mm-hmm. uh, published a book after his death that they had been, you know, gathering information for. And uh, that was published in 1995. And it's called The Pictorial Guide to the Birds of the Indian Subcontinent. So even after death, yeah, this so guy was... is still publishing. He's like Tupac. He's like the Tupac <laughs> of the bird world. Amazing authoring from the grave exactly so totally would invite him to brunch yeah he would probably shoot his own meal and bring it to us i was
1: gonna say like what kind of uh like breakfast food has
0: chicken in it
1: i don't know i guess you could do
0: like chicken and waffles or something Ooh, yes it would be like we'd be like oh is this chicken and waffles he'd be like yes chicken chicken of course (laughs) what
1: yes it is not an ibis
0: no what it's not endangered who said it was endangered uh, uh, it's just it's just a crane sorry (laughs) but yeah he would he would be awesome and uh yeah we'd have to treat him if he's so frugal yeah. Then, uh, yeah. We definitely have to pay. Yeah, we'd be but... like
1: bottomless mimosas. He's like, that's a terrible waste of money.
0: <laughs> but we should invite him and Jane Goodall because I feel like ever since a young age they were both super into observing the natural world. Yeah,
1: for sure. For sure. And they can give you know, exchange camping
0: tips. <laughs> yeah. She's like, so when you're out in the bush and there's a giant chimpanzee staring They're at you. They're gonna
1: talk about like what the best uh, <laughs> natural sources of teepee are. It's like, well, this kind of moss is really soft. <laughs>
0: really really nice on the bum. <sighs> oh my god. They'd be amazing. You could like send them off in the wilderness and they'd be fine for the next 20 years. Yeah,
1: I'm, I'm not I'm not the best camper.
0: Oh, I know it's, I'm not the best all, camper. It's all it's all
1: right, but I'm not totally taken with it.
0: Yeah. I mean, whenever I see, you know, have you ever seen those like historical sh- reconstruction shows where they're like, everyone's going to pretend like they're living in 1600. And I'm like, but why? It's so terrible. Like every time I see a movie where they're like hauling water or they have to pee in the woods, I'm like, <laughs> I like the idea of living, you know, hundreds of years ago, just because you got to use so many candles. Cause I really liked
1: candles. I was like such a little pyromaniac as a kid. I was like, you get to light things on fire every day.
0: Yeah, I was watching this special about like, you know, how the Vikings kind of developed their their civilization they started living in all these wood houses and you know that's like the history of that area and they were like oh yeah there were regular fires they're like there aren't that many historically preserved buildings because there were regular fires just, yeah. like, everything burned to the ground how, how are you how you doing today dave well my house burned down <laughs> and i was like yeah it happens <laughs> yep yep totally yep. been there yeah that's what candles get to you. <laughs> Burn down houses all the time. It's like when you had like your Christmas tree and you
1: put yeah. candles on it. It's like, let's oh get God. a piece of dried plant and put it inside and put
0: fire on Only it. Only the Germans could pull that off, by the way. <laughs> That's yeah. Scary. So impressive. I really liked learning about him and, you know, his role in kind of this tumultuous time in his country and yeah. holding it together for for histo- uh, natural conservation yeah. movement. So it was good. Good job, Salim. We salute you. Come to brunch. (laughs) You deserve a brunch. Yeah. So that's it for this episode of Science Brunch. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be here again next time with another topic that we'll figure out. Yeah, we'll just talk about some more science Yeah, and scientists and what they would order at brunch. Exactly. You know, Important stuff. Mm-hmm. And then um, in the meantime, we will be at the March for Science in Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles, on April 22nd. So if you're in the area, you should come by and say hi. We'll have some goodies to give out. And in the meantime, check us out on Twitter and Facebook and follow us and review and...